Uh, so we're 1 Samuel chapter 7, that's on page 194. If you need a Bible, just pop your hands up nice and straight and the ushers will bring one to you. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted and there they confessed. We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shem. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel. And Israel delivered the neighbouring territory from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was. And there he also held court for Israel, and he built an altar there to the Lord. Now, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but we've just had an election. No, of course you've noticed. I'm kidding, of course. How could you not notice? And just when you thought that it was all done and dusted, you've had to endure this week where every single man and his dog is giving their opinion on what went wrong for Labor. Everyone's asking, what happened? How did Labor lose the unlosable election? And have you noticed that everyone seems to have a theory from Adani through to taxes through to personality or lack thereof? Some people are saying, was it the elitist, condescending, greener-than-thou approach of some? Christians might want to ask, was it matters of religious freedom? Was it positions on abortion? And then there are those who don't want to point the finger at the Labour Party for the defeat, but at the people. You can do this in a positive way, uh, like you can say, it was the quiet Australian who chose common sense, like some people are saying. Or you can do it in a more neutral, not-so-positive way, like Tanya Plibersek, who suggested that if only her party had have had more time to explain to everyone how much they'd benefit from Labor's plans, 
then Australians would have realised just how fortunate they would have been under a Labour government. In other words, it's not Labour who's the problem here, it's the voters who don't know what's good for them. Or you can even do it in a really negative way, like Bridget Delaney, a journalist who wrote a column saying that Australia has shown itself to be rotten. But after a big defeat, after an unexpected loss, what do you do? Well, you should look at yourself. It's the natural and the right thing to do, to to analyse what went wrong. It's painful, but of course the more honest you can be with yourself, the more likely it is that you'll learn from your mistakes. So is that what the Israelites are doing when they've been delivered a big defeat, an unexpected defeat at the hands of the Philistines? Are they asking the question, what went wrong, and are they coming up with the right answers? Now remember over the last couple of weeks, we've seen Israel suffer heavy losses to the Philistines. We saw that the leaders of Israel, Eli and especially his two sons, were corrupt and were exploiting the people. And we saw that God was completely able to deal with with these corrupt leaders. In a single day, God swept aside the corrupt leadership. But at the same time, 34,000 Israelites were killed by the Philistines. Why? Were they just collateral damage? Or is there another reason why God lets this defeat happen? Now, no one so far in the story of 1 Samuel seems to be asking these kind of questions. And you remember we've also seen over the weeks that the ark is captured by the Philistines. And then we saw that God was completely able to deal with Israel's enemies single-handedly. God wreaks havoc on the Philistines wherever the ark goes, and so they return it to Israel. And the Israelites are happy about this to begin with, but then some of them look inside the ark, and so 70 of them are put to death by God. And so the people in chapter 6, verse 20, they say, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, the holy God? It looks like they're starting to ask the right kind of questions about what's gone wrong. But then, instead of pursuing these questions, look at what they ask next. To whom will the ark go up from here? They come up with the same answers as the Philistines. The problem is is with God and they need to get him away from them as quickly as possible. And so the ark, although it's a symbol of God's presence with them, it gets parked in some nowhere town for the next 20 years to gather dust. They just don't want to ask what really went wrong. They just don't want to deal honestly with God. Now, this strikes me as a very typical kind of human response, actually. My experience with my own heart and with other people is that we're very reluctant, actually, to take the time to own our own contribution to the problems that we find ourselves facing. We'll come back to this in a minute. But first, let's return to what's happening in Israel. Twenty years go by with no evidence of any soul-searching whatsoever. God is brushed to the side. But then we come to this chapter, chapter 7, and things begin to change. There's a, a growing threat again from the Philistines. And as the people grapple with 
with this painful situation, they finally begin to grapple with their own contribution to it. We read in in chapter 7 verse 2, Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. But what we see in chapter 7 is that turning back to God properly takes more than you might think. It takes the prophet that God sent them, helping them turn back with all their heart. And this is the first thing and the main thing that we're going to focus on today. If you're returning to the Lord, it must be with all your heart. Verses 3 and 4 in that chapter, they they give a summary of of the people returning to the Lord. And then verses 5 to 12, they give the bigger picture of, of what happens. And in these two sections, there are some important markers for what real repentance looks like. And straight up today, I want to say to us that these markers of real repentance, they're as relevant to us today as they were for them back then. Let me tell you why. Jesus' message to the whole world is that he is Lord and Saviour of those who turn to him. And he says that our response to this message should be to repent and believe. And of course, repentance, it's not just something that you do the the day that you become a follower of Jesus and and then you never do it again. Repentance marks the way that our relationship with God begins, but it also marks the way that our relationship with God continues. Let me give you a bit of a, a silly example, but one that's true nonetheless. Before I was married, when I was a bachelor, I think it's fair to say that I lived like a bachelor. I uh, washed up once a week. I still remember the um, cast iron pots sort of having rust in them, which was always extra difficult to deal with. Like all bachelors, a solid meal for me sometimes was a packet of Tim Tams. I had an earring. I didn't cut my hair. I don't remember owning a vacuum cleaner at any point before being married. If I shaved, it looked like the sink was growing a beard for the next week. Now, when I got married, as I made made those vows before Kathy, before God, to honour her with all that I am, to cherish her, I was effectively repenting of my bachelor way of life. But here's the thing. I didn't just repent of my bachelor way of life on the wedding day only to return to it the very next day. For every day of my life since, I turn away from my bachelor life. You'll be pleased to know. It is is true that sometimes I slip back into my old bachelor ways, but at those times especially, I need to repent of being a bachelor. Now, I know that's a silly illustration, but what it illustrates isn't silly at all. Repentance is there at the beginning of the Christian life and it continues to be there in the Christian life right up until Jesus returns. So what we see here in 1 Samuel is relevant for those of us who've never turned to God. It's relevant for those of us who've wandered from God in a dramatic way. But it's actually relevant for all of us because we all slip up. And we all rebel against God on a day-to-day basis. Repentance, it's all about turning to God for mercy, for grace. And so I thought 
to help us remember what real repentance looks like in 1 Samuel. That we could use the letters G-R-C-E, grace, to spell it out. What we see in 1 Samuel 7 is that wholehearted turning back to God means we need to grieve, rid, admit, commit and expect. I know, it's clever, isn't it? I've always wanted to be one of those preachers who could just come up with elaborate words and acronyms. It's only taken me 10 years to get there. But seriously, I'd love it if we could remember these five things. Because like I said before, my experience of my own heart and my experience as a minister has shown me time and time again that most of us are not great at truly repenting. But if we did these five things, it really would be liberating. It would be beautiful, a beautiful thing. So let me run through them. A critical step in repenting is we grieve. The word for turning back here in verse 2 is actually they lamented, they mourned. And it's hard to know if at first they're only mourning because of the consequences of their actions or if they're mourning out of genuine sadness for what they've done to God. Whatever the case is, Samuel helps them to dwell in this feeling of lament without rushing over it. Look at what the people do, what he gets the people to do in verse 6. When they'd assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day, they fasted. They're refusing to drink and, and they're refusing to eat as a way of both expressing their grief, but also as a way of focusing themselves on that grief. A mark of real repentance is grief and not just grief over our circumstances. Real repentance means we grieve what we've done. Sometimes we realise that there's something in our life that's causing us pain and damage. Maybe we finally see that our use of alcohol is causing us pain and damage or maybe it's our gossip or bitterness or addiction to porn, or our unforgiving heart. And in our grief over the mess that we've caused ourselves, it becomes clear to us that we need to turn back to God. Now, without a doubt, that's absolutely true, but we can't stop there. Real repentance takes us further. We also need to grieve the pain that we've caused God and others. We need to dwell in that feeling of lament without rushing over it. And I don't think that comes naturally to most of us. I think most of us keep our emotions safely hidden from the truth about ourselves most of the time. And I know that some of us excessively beat ourselves up, and I'm not talking about doing that at all, because that's not based on truth either. Either, I'm talking about having a healthy kind of grief, grief, for our sin against God. So can I ask you honestly, when you sin against God, do you wholeheartedly grieve? Now having said this, it's possible to so focus on the emotional response that we don't keep going where we need to go. Another critical step in real real repentance is we rid. Samuel tells The people that grief on its own, it's not enough. It's not genuine. He says in verse 3, If you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves 
of the foreign gods in the Ashtoreths. Now here's what went wrong in Israel, right? It's been staring them in the eyes the whole time. Here's the answer as to why they were defeated with such a big defeat. They've been unfaithful to God. They've given their hearts to other idols. And so God has given them over to the choices, to the consequences of their choices. And Samuel says that a, a critical part of real repentance is getting rid of the things that caused them to turn away. For them, back then, they needed to throw away the idols that they had. It was clear and it was obvious. But no doubt, getting rid of the idols was one thing, but getting rid of their suspicion that maybe the idols could actually do good for them, I'm sure that was another. For us, real repentance means getting rid of the things that that cause us to turn away from God. In other words, repentance is about turning. When we first turn to Jesus, we, we turn away from ruling our own lives. We walk away from that and we hand over completely rule to Jesus. But as we go along, we keep finding pockets of our lives that we haven't fully handed over or things that we've, we've wrestled back from God. We find ways of thinking, desires in our hearts and actions that actually run against Jesus' rule. And when we find them, we repent. We get rid of these ways of thinking and feeling and living. Never, never will you find a true believer who knows that something is sinful and who knows that what they're doing is rebellion against Jesus, but is happy to live that way anyway. Never. Now, I'm not saying true followers of Jesus don't struggle with sin and rebellion. I'm saying the exact opposite. True followers of Jesus do struggle. That's the point. They struggle. Those who don't struggle, but happily embrace sinning against Jesus, they're not following Jesus by definition. This means that we really can't be people who happily tolerate sin in our lives. We can't think things like, yeah, I know I'm a gossip. That's just who I am. It doesn't matter. We can't think, I'm a bit of a drunk. I know Jesus doesn't want me to be, but I'm okay with it. We can't think, I look at pornography. It's inevitable. Real repentance means we rid ourselves of the things that defy God's rule in our lives. It's the Holy Spirit who helps us to see this and to do this. And rather than being a horrible burden, turning away from sin is actually liberating. And in the end, it is a joy. So can I ask you honestly, when you sin against God, do you wholeheartedly rid yourself of the things that have caused you to sin? And do you rid yourself of the suspicion that maybe those things are actually good for you? Another critical part of repentance is we admit. Look at what Samuel leads them to do in verse 6. On that day they fasted and there they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. Often when we talk about confessing sin, I reckon we get nervous. Why is that? It's because secrecy almost 
always goes hand in hand with sin. Don't you reckon? I mean, think about it. Adam and Eve. They try to hide their sin from God. Cain tries to hide that he's murdered his brother. Secrecy. Denial. Self-justification. Excusing ourselves. Diminishing our actions. These are all partners in crime with sin. And they probably, they probably cause more damage to us than the original sin in the first place. Because they send us running from God rather than to God like we need to. Wholeheartedly turning to God means admitting our sin, not trying to hide it. Not trying to put a positive spin on it. And notice here in 1 Samuel that the people confess their sin not only to God but before each other as well. Now I think the idea of that is what really terrifies us. Now sometimes we say a a confession together here as a church and, and so we should. But the great difficulty with it is that we can end up only ever confessing our sin in theory. Do you know what I mean? The danger is that we could become inauthentic. Now, I I absolutely believe that we should corporately confess our sins together like that because it reminds us about the truth of, of, of who we really are. But notice when the Israelites are confessing their sin here, they know exactly why they need to do this. They're not just going through the motions. They're thinking of the foreign gods who, up until a few days ago, were sitting on their mantelpiece at home. They can call very specific things to mind. We shouldn't just go through the motions either. When we confess corporately, we should recall specific things. It should be genuine. And when we confess our sin before God on our own, we shouldn't just go through the motions. Again, we should be genuine and specific. One of the great struggles that I have with my kids is getting them to say sorry to each other. When they, when they do actually say sorry, it's like watching an episode of The Office. It's excruciating. It's like a small part of them is dying on the inside. And I've noticed over the years what they're especially terrible at is being specific. Now I make sure I always say to them to not only say sorry, but to say why they're sorry. I also try to get them not to yell at each other. Sorry! But trying to get them to be specific feels like pulling teeth sometimes. But it's not just them who struggle to say sorry and and to admit what they've done. I find myself, when I'm confessing to God, to actually be specific and to really be able to put my finger on what it is that I'm saying sorry for. We have things so back to front as humans. I mean, God tells us that our good deeds should be done secretly. But what do we want? Well, don't we often want to make them as public as we can? And God says to us when we sin, we should admit it to Him and and even to each other. But what do we want? Well, we want to make sin as private as possible. Now, I don't think we should post sin on Facebook. But I do think that it's a good idea to have a couple of people who love you, who you love, who you trust who you can admit your struggles to and your failures to. 
And if someone who loves you tries to point out to you that you need to turn back to God in some area of your life, your spouse or a friend, don't be surprised or defensive or stubborn. Don't we believe that we're all sinful, not just in theory, but in practice? If someone's pointing something out to you out of love, then they're doing you a great kindness. So can I ask you, honestly, when you sin against God, do you wholeheartedly admit, admit it to Him and admit it to others? Next, we see that real repentance means we need to commit. Samuel says to them in verse 3, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve Him only. Real repentance means that they need to take the steps to, to stay committed to God. This isn't about a, a flash in the pan. It, it should never be about that. They need to commit to serving God into the future. And of course, it's the same for us. Jesus says to us that we can't serve God and money or God and anything else. Real repentance means committing ourselves to serve God only. Committing to serving God means looking to Him alone for forgiveness, for security, for joy, for meaning, for hope. It means being committed to finding all of these treasures, all the treasures of life in Jesus, in eternity with God. So can I ask you honestly, when you sin against God, do you wholeheartedly commit yourself back to Him? The final aspect of real repentance that we see here is we expect. And there are two things that we can expect when we wholeheartedly turn to God. We see the first one in verse 3. Samuel says, commit yourselves to the Lord and serve Him only and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. We can expect God to be true to His promises. For them, the promise was that if they turned to God wholeheartedly, He'd deliver them from their enemies. For us, read the New Testament, and the promise is that if we turn wholeheartedly to God, He'll deliver us from our sin, deliver us from death and punishment. And He'll deliver us not from our problems in this life, but He'll deliver us through them. He may not take our problems instantly away, but neither will He abandon us in them. He'll be with us by His Holy Spirit. He'll move in us and He'll guard us And he'll change us and bring us safely to his side. That's what we can expect. But the second thing that we can expect when we turn wholeheartedly to God is for things to get difficult. Look at what happens to the Israelites in verse 7. When the Israelites heard that, sorry, when the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. They're opportunistic here. The Israelites, they gather before God to turn back to Him. That's what they're doing. And then what happens? Well, the Philistines gather to destroy them. Surely they must have been thinking, have we made the wrong decision here, turning back to God? But we read in verse 7, when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. But unlike all the other times, their repentance this time is real and they stay committed to God. Look at verse 8. They said to Samuel, 
Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. If you remember back to the previous battle, this is so different to 20 years earlier. Back then they weren't afraid, they were arrogant. Back then they they didn't seek God's input in that battle. Remember, they just treated God like a lucky charm. Now they're humble. Now they depend on God. Now they look expectantly to Him. Have you ever experienced something like this? Have you ever turned back to God wholeheartedly, thrown yourself on Him, and then suddenly found that things have got a whole lot darker in life? I see it fairly often in people's lives, actually. They tell me that they've turned back to God and they're excited, and I'm excited. And then I ask them how it's going a few weeks later. And sometimes, fairly often, they tell me it's been really, really hard and they feel like giving up. We should expect hard times to follow real repentance. Of course the devil's not happy when our hearts turn back to God. And he will thrash around and test our commitment. But not only can we expect hard times, we can expect that God really will prove himself to be faithful through those hard times. So can I ask you honestly, when you sin against God and turn back, do you wholeheartedly expect both tough times ahead and God to prove himself faithful through those tough times? So we've seen what real repentance looks like in 1 Samuel 7. But even real repentance on its own is still not enough. Very quickly, super quickly, I'm going to give you the rest of the picture because 1 Samuel 7 also shows us that if you're returning to the Lord, you need an intercessor. No matter how repentant we are, no matter how wholeheartedly we might turn to the Lord, that won't help us at all unless God is willing to be merciful. But the amazing thing about God is that He is willing. For them, despite the 20 years of these people trying to push God out of their lives, still God is merciful. Despite the centuries of this pattern being repeated, still God is merciful. But notice here in 1 Samuel that even their wholehearted turning to God is only possible because of God. God provides them with someone who intercedes for them. Samuel says in verse 5, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. Samuel stands between God and the people. He's sent by God. He calls the people back to God. He prays to God on their behalf, and he makes atonement for them before God. Without Samuel, the people would never have truly turned back, and they would never have been delivered. But God is so merciful that he takes the initiative. He sends them the intercessor they need. And after 20 years, what's happening in this chapter is that God is making the failed battle of Ebenezer 1 right. This is Ebenezer 2. God delivers them such a victory here and such a peace that it it lasts throughout all the days of Samuel's life. Just like 1 Samuel 7 shows us that real, what real repentance looks like, it also shows us that like them, if we're going to truly turn back to God, we need an intercessor. 
We need someone to intercede for us. And of course, God's given us that person. God sends Jesus to turn our hearts back to him. God sends Jesus to intercede on our behalf to make it possible for us to be forgiven. And of course, Jesus is a far greater intercessor than Samuel. Unlike Samuel, Jesus is God's own son. He's of infinite value. And the sacrifice that Jesus offers is his own perfect life to atone for us. And here's another thing. Unlike Samuel, Jesus lives forever interceding for us. Think about that. Right now, Jesus, he's speaking to the Father right now for you, interceding for you. Right now, he's working in our lives to keep us turning back to him. He is an intercessor who lives forever. Let's be a people who listen to him. Let's be a people who wholeheartedly turn to God and who keep on wholeheartedly turning back to God when we need to. Let's be a people who throw ourselves on Jesus, our intercessor. And so can I ask you as we finish today, where do you need to show real repentance? Where do you need to grieve, rid, admit, commit and expect Will you do it? Will you take those steps of real repentance? All of them. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, which is powerful, which is confronting, Lord, and yet which is liberating, life-giving. We thank you so much for Jesus who calls us back to you and who makes it possible for us to stand in your presence. We thank you that he is standing there right now with you. That here we are in your throne room, God, because of him and him alone. Father, it's too wonderful for words. It's too hard for us to even comprehend it. And yet, Lord, it is a glorious and a wonderful thing. And we are so thankful to you for him. We pray, Lord, that we would listen to his voice today and every day. And when he calls us to repent, When he calls us to turn back, Father, help us to listen. Work in us by your Holy Spirit to point out where we need to turn back. And work in us by your Holy Spirit to genuinely go through the steps of real repentance. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.